Good evening. Glad to see everyone here. In your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John as we continue there. In that short letter from the Apostle, uh, we are in chapter 4. There's only five chapters, so um, by this time next year, we should be done. No. <laughs> um, yes, we are in chapter 4. And um, I'm going to read out a section, uh, kind of a larger section, including what we did last week, just um, for context, because this whole section that we're in here is um, all connected together, starting in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4. Uh, we did last week, we did 7 through 11. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read this week 7 through 16. But then we will be, when we get started, we'll be focusing on verse 12 through 16. So let's look at that. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his, of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the time we've had to sing and, um, and praise you with, with song, Lord. We're so grateful. Grateful for what we sung as we're reminded of what a friend we have in Jesus. The truth of that relationship, Father, is amazing. All our sins and griefs to bear. And then, Father, what a privilege to carry everything to you in prayer. And so we do now come to you in prayer, asking your help as we open your word, as we read it, hear it, Father, that you would teach us we ask you, Lord, to continue to be gracious to us as we need your grace every day. Thank you for our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fellowship of believers, for all those that are here. We thank you, Lord, for answers to prayer regarding the fires. As things have gotten better there, Father, you, you have answered prayers and you have kept many structures from being destroyed kept people safe, and we thank you for answering those prayers for us uh, that way, Father. We praise you for it. 
We pray for our pastor who's away on vacation with his family. Lord, we ask um, you'd continue to help them to have a good time the last few days that they're there. Bring them home safely to us, Lord. May they be rested um, and well cared for there. We thank you for your love for us. We praise you. We want you to be glorified tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, like I said, last week we looked at um, verses 7 through 11 in chapter 4 of 1 John, but we were not able to get to verse 12. Um, and so as I do a short recap of the lesson from last week, uh, we'll, we'll be building up to the point of verse 12, and then we'll continue from there. So let me, let me do a little recap of last week. Does this sound too, too hot, this mic? Sorry, it sounds like it's really loud. That would bother me if I was sitting out there. But <laughs> um, so the focus last week was on the love of God. Okay, we saw that love itself is defined by God because God is the creator of everything. Not that love is just a created thing apart from God, but that there is more to know about it. We saw that God himself is love. It is his very essence, along with many other attributes and character traits, of course. We also saw that love comes from God. Love originates with God. It has no other source. No one else has ever even thought about love, come up with a concept of love, or known how to show love, but God himself. So John can say, God is love, and love comes from God. So John's point in giving this lesson about love was to make two other points very clear. Okay, God showed us the ultimate example of love, is the first point. Second point is, therefore, we must respond in like manner. We saw that last week. We see both points clearly made in verses 10 and 11 that we went through last week. How did God show the ultimate example? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, the son of God sent by God to take on the wrath of God for you and for me. He was sent to be the propitiation, right? The offering to satisfy the wrath of God. God's wrath was pointed at you and pointed at me, but Jesus came and God turned the wrath toward him instead and put it all on him. That, John says, is love, the ultimate example of love. And regarding the response to the ultimate example, John said in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's, there's a response. Uh, and remember, this is how John started um, this whole passage as well, with the same command. Um, and it is, um, it is a command, to be sure. Verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He says, let us love one another for a reason. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And that verse brings us also to the subject of proofs again. We've talked a lot about proofs as we've gone through this letter, proofs of salvation. We've seen John make this point in many ways, that a person can not only know 
if they are a Christian, but if someone else is a Christian. We've seen many instances here where John has, has proven that. Um, there are things that prove this or make it clear in last week's lesson. This love for one another was proof of a person's salvation. So the love between Christian brethren is proof of salvation. He said, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To be born of God, again, is a reference to the new birth in Jesus Christ. So the subject here is salvation. You could say here, whoever loves has been saved and knows God. That's, that's what John's getting at there. Uh, and this is not everyone. Okay? It's not every human being, but only those who have repented and put their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Again, this is not by the world's definition of love. Okay, the world knows love as feelings, emotions. It knows love as something earned by performance. I will love you if you do this or that. Or I love that person because they're this or that. Okay, God's love is not about feeling or an emotion or about performance, but the act of showing love to what is not lovable, namely you and me. Okay? This is love of the will, love of choice. And in the Greek, it is agape, love, agape. Um, now, this is, you know, I talk about the fact that this is not about feelings or emotions. Does that mean that we as Christians have no feeling or no emotion? That we can't respond with feelings or emotions? Absolutely not. But, but it begins with knowledge. It begins with the truth. So the truth about Christ is what brings about a response of emotion of some sort. It's not hyped up emotion for the sake of having emotion. It is a response to knowledge of the truth. So we have to remember that. Um, so certainly I do not mean that there is no feeling and no emotion in Christians. Uh, and then there's verse 12, which, like I said, we didn't get to last week. Uh, and it's a verse that it can seem a little out of place at first. Uh, let's look at it together in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. If we, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So, personally, at least, because of the first part of that verse is what kind of makes it sound out of place. Um, you can begin to think John is starting a, a new subject here when, when he goes on to no one has ever seen God. Um, what does anything he's been talking about have to do with the fact that nobody has ever seen God? Well, we know that's true. We know it's true that nobody's ever seen God. We know it from uh, the Scriptures. Uh, in several places. John does so at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. John said God has only been seen in the person of the Son, Jesus. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Okay, it's a reference to Jesus. That whole beginning of John is, is about the coming of Christ. And there he's telling us that no one has seen God. But, but the, the only God who's at, his, who's at the Father's side, that's a reference to Jesus, 
and a reference to Jesus' deity. Uh, and it's him that has made God known. He came to earth. He was made manifest um, uh, among us. But no one has ever seen God. Moses asked God to show him his glory, if you remember. But God made it clear that was not possible. If Moses wanted to keep on living, that is. Right? Exodus 33.20, God said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, but what does this fact have to do with the subject of God's love toward us and our response of love toward him and toward the brethren? Um, I think the answer becomes clearer when we look at John's words in verse 7 and then go right into all of verse 12. So not just the first part of verse 12. That's Like I said, that's what makes you think it could be a new subject. But if we go back to verse 7 and read that and then read verse 12, I think it helps make sense. So let's look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Then skip down to verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Okay, you see, the thing John is getting at is this. Jesus was God in the flesh, but he is no longer with us on the earth. Nobody has ever seen God the Father, but if you and I as Christians will love one another, not only does that prove we are God's children, but we will be a living picture of his love to the world who cannot see him. Okay, that's, that's John's point. And this is not new news, right? Uh, John said as much when he gave his new commandment to the people in uh, the 13th chapter of his gospel account. John 13, verses 34 and 35 said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, this is Jesus talking. John's, John wrote, it, wrote about it, but it's Jesus talking. And he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So God, who the world cannot see, is pleased to reveal himself through the love of his people as it's shown to one another. This is what it means that the love of God is perfected in us. Does it really matter if Christians love one another? Why does the world need to know that we are disciples of Jesus? Does it really matter? Why? Why does the world need to know that we're his disciples? We set an example, okay? Okay, so we're the only way, perhaps, that the word of God is given to people? Okay, by watching our life. And why is that important? Winning souls, right, okay? Because they need to know their need to know. This is all about the gospel, okay? They need to know that they need the gospel. God doesn't just use the love exhibited by his children so that people will think, well, those are really nice people. But he does so to bring about an occasion for the gospel to be proclaimed to lost people. 
Right? That's why they need to know we're his disciples. That's why it's important that we love one another. It's, and, and we need to be clear, it's not just the loving of one another that saves people. They can't, uh, an unsaved person can't see Christians loving each other and then get saved. But God uses that in their life as an example, and he uses it to perhaps cause them to ask questions, like we've been looking in First Peter, being ready to give an example uh, for the hope that you have within you, you know, to give an explanation. That means that people are going to be asking, what is going on here? Why do you love each other like that? How, how can you treat each other like that? Um, it brings about opportunity, not just so they can know we're nice people or, yeah, those Christians, they really love each other, but so that we can open our mouths with the gospel so that they can be saved as well. Uh, regarding John's statement here about love being perfected in us, uh, commentator Stephen Cole put it this way, which I found helpful. He, he means that the unseen God who was historically revealed in the incarnation of the Son is now revealed by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit in His people when they love one another. It's an amazing thought. I think that's really, that's really true. That is, we have an opportunity in our obedience to God and as we love one another, it's not just about the gospel for other people. It's also a part of our sanctification. It's also a part of our lives being made more and more like Christ. But God uses it for many things, not only for each individual Christian personally uh, and for their growth, but for the growth together as a body and for the witnessing to unbelievers with the gospel. We also don't want to miss that John has repeated in verse 12 his teaching that you can know you are saved. Okay, this could be easy to overlook, but he did so by making another uh, an if-then statement. He said, if we love one another, okay, then the then part, God abides in us, if-then. Proof of salvation is his point there in, in that portion of that uh, verse. Now on to John's next proof of salvation in verse 13. Okay, here John says that we all know, uh, he says what we all know to be true as Christians, that every believer has the Spirit of God living in them. Okay, we, we know this. We were told this. We hear it all the time. We can read it in the Scriptures. It's something we know. God the Father is in heaven. God the Son is at his right hand. God the Spirit dwells in every believer. 1 John 4.13 is where we're at. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Okay, he says, again, this is really familiar language from John. He says, by this we know. Know what? that we abide in Him and He in us. What does that mean, that, that we abide in Him? What, do you think, what does that word abide mean? What's that? Yes, live, to remain, right? There's a, there's a, a constancy to it. Uh, there's a settled aspect to abiding. Uh, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. We remain in him and he in us. Uh, that's not going away. Again, it's not something we lose. 
um, to, to abide, there's, there's assurance in that word. There's encouragement in that word. He says, we know. So, he's talking about the Spirit here, because he has given us of his Spirit. What are some biblical terms for what the Spirit of God is doing, or for what the Spirit of God is also known as? What are some biblical terms you can think of that describe the Holy Spirit or His work? He's the comforter? Absolutely. Any others? Healer? Okay. He teaches. Absolutely. Scripture says He leads us into all truth. Scripture also refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. Jesus himself talked about the Holy Spirit as the helper. He came because Jesus went back to be with the Father. Before Jesus left, he said, it's good that I go because I will send the helper to be with you. So it was good for Jesus to go so that the Spirit would come. Other things that the Spirit does. He convicts, according to Scripture, he convicts the world of sin righteousness, and judgment. Okay, he's, he's doing things in believers. He's also doing things in unbelievers. Gives us discernment. Right, that goes along with um, the fact that he leads us into all truth. Um, how does the Spirit do that? Does he um, give us new things that we write down or that someone else writes down? No. He teaches us through the Word of God. We open up the Bible. As we read it, the Holy Spirit teaches us. He gives us understanding. Um, and He's constantly doing that. As any of you can testify, you've been Christians for a long time, you, you constantly learn new things as you read the Bible. And God reveals. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit will teach you things that you thought wrongly about. And He'll, he'll correct your thinking. And sometimes He does that through other people. Um, sometimes it'll just click with you as you're reading a passage that you've read before and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and you realize, wow, I've always understood that wrongly. <laughs> and we can praise God that he, he teaches us through His Spirit. So He convicts. Uh, like I said, He's helping us as believers, indwelling us. He's, he's sanctifying us through the Word of God. He's helping us to live the Christian life. Um, he's a comforter, all these other words that we've heard. But to unbelievers... He's convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, God has given everybody, everybody a conscience. Uh, God, and everyone knows that there is a God. There really are no atheists. The scriptures tell us in Romans 1 that people know. They have no excuse. What they're doing is actually just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because the Holy Spirit does work in people to convict them of this. Yes. Did you have a question or were you just scratching your eye? <laughs> right. Yeah, Jesus told his disciples that, that the Holy Spirit would, would bring to remembrance everything that he had taught them. Absolutely. Another of the things we need to know about the Spirit of God and His work in the lives of believers goes to what John is talking about here in this passage. 
but also want to look and see what, what Paul said about it. If you want to turn with me to uh, Ephesians, go back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And we'll look at verses 13 and 14. Actually, yeah, 13 and 14. That's where we're at. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And while I'm reading this, keep track of what Paul says about the Holy Spirit's role. Keep track of that as, as we're reading this passage. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What is the Holy Spirit? He's a guarantee. Absolutely. He's a guarantee of our inheritance. Okay, that's, a, that's a reference not only to the new birth that we are in Christ, that, but that we are adopted as his sons and daughters, and what is to come is an inheritance. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that inheritance. What else? What else we learn about the Holy Spirit in those two verses? Seal. He is the seal. That's right. The seal of our salvation. Um, we also see that he was promised. The promised Holy Spirit. Jesus promised he would come. He is the seal of our salvation. And he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Those are some really important aspects of the Holy Spirit. And we can take great comfort in passages like this in Ephesians about the Holy Spirit. That, and look at these verses as, as assurance these aren't, these aren't words about something that is temporary, right? A seal, uh, a guarantee, those, are, those words have permanence to them. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not something that's untrustworthy. When the, when the Scriptures tell us this is what the Holy Spirit does, we can believe it. We can trust it. How do we know? Back to our passage. How do we know we're saved? Because we have the Spirit of God within. But then you might ask the question, how do we know we have the Spirit of God within? Now, somebody might ask that if they say, how do you know you're saved? Well, because I have the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, He's within, the Bible says. Well, we can know because we can see the evidence, right? We, we can see the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The specific evidence that John has been giving is that there's a genuine love for the brethren. Right? This is, this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, the, the proof that someone is saved is that they love the brethren. And that kind of love cannot be manifest in the lives of people unless they're born of God. And this concept isn't it's not too difficult to understand. Right? We, can, we can see the leaves on the tree moving, um, and although we can't see the wind, we know it's there because of its effects. Right? Those leaves are moving because 
of the breeze because the wind is blowing. Someone says, what does wind look like? I don't know. I can't see it. But I can see the effects of it, right? The leaves are moving. I can, even from a distance, I can't even hear the wind, but I can see those leaves moving and I can tell it's windy outside, right? Um, it's, it's moving those leaves. Uh, or it's, it's keeping the kite in the sky, right? Without, without the wind, the kite wouldn't be up there. But here it is, floating along up there, only held to the earth by your, the string that you have there, right? Uh, but we can't see that wind holding it there, but we know it's there. I can't see the air, but I know it's there because I'm breathing, right? Now maybe in L.A. you can see the air, but here we can't see the air, <laughs> unless there's a fire. <laughs> uh, but the, the effects of the air prove to me that it's there. I can breathe. In the same way, the Christian has the Holy Spirit empowering them to live the Christian life. Um, this is an impossibility without the indwelling Holy Spirit. When we see a person living a life that gives evidence that the Spirit of God is within in them, then we can conclude that they are a child of God. We can conclude that they are saved. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. And we've, we've gone here before, but it goes to this point again that's being made here that this is all the living of the Christian life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live a Christian life without that. So as someone is living a life in accordance with, with the Word of God, we know it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, you see the impossibility of that there. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But those who are in the Spirit, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, can live according to God's law. This is how John can use the language he does, saying um, that we can know. Okay, the Bible tells us how to know. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe what the Scripture says? about knowing if we are saved or not? Do we believe what the Scripture says about knowing if the Holy Spirit indwells us? We could talk about the fruits of the Spirit, right? We're not going to go turn there, but, but think about the fruits of the Spirit for a minute. They're just that. They are of the Spirit. They cannot be conjured up by human beings without the work of the indwelling Spirit of God. To not have the Spirit of God is to live by the flesh. And what comes with that is the fruit of the flesh. Okay, so John, John goes on to reiterate his own testimony about the truth here in verse 14 now. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John was an eyewitness to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he can say we have seen 
When he says that he testifies about this, he's making a strong point that he has the credibility to testify. He is a witness, an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's not just testifying to what he thinks or what he believes based on human reasoning, but he testifies as a witness to the truth by by his firsthand experience. Remember how he started this letter with this same sort of expression back in chapter 1 of 1 John, verses 1 through 3. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Then based on that testimony, now he goes into verse 15. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. Okay, this is, this is more proof. This is, but this is both a, a statement of proof and an invitation. Right? Anyone who's a Christian can and should be uplifted by this truth. As you're sitting here tonight, if you are a believer, you can be comforted by these words. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and he in God. God abides in him, and he in God. Okay, so, so for Christians, that's, they should be assured of their salvation based on their confession about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And this is an invitation because anyone listening to John's letter being read who had not yet been saved would know that, that they can receive that through this confession. Now, can't anyone say the words, Jesus is the Son of God. Anyone can say those words, right? Does that mean they're saved? Right, yeah, and even beyond that, uh, this is, it's not just about uttering words, right? We know anybody can utter those words. So that's not what he means by that. He's, he's talking about uh, the person who confesses Christ in the full context of the gospel, Right? Everything that goes along with it, according to Scripture, um, this confession includes everything that the Scripture says regarding salvation. This means repentance from sin, faith in Christ's work to save you, you know, turning from your self-righteous, uh, useless works for salvation to the only Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's a confession about all of the person and work of Jesus Christ and a submission to that. The Bible says that even the demons believe God is who he says he is, right? And they tremble, right? They, they can utter those words. Uh, James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? And there's a passage where Jesus comes and to deal with the man that's possessed, right? And the demons, they, they identify him. They know exactly who Jesus is. They say, what have you to do with me? Son of the living God. They, they know exactly who Jesus is. They can utter those words. But the demons are missing something, right? They don't have what God 
works in those he's saving. They don't have it. What is God looking for? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That doesn't describe the demons. They, they can utter some truth about God. They can utter truth about Jesus as the Son of God, but they do not have a humble and contrite spirit. They, they do not tremble at his word. A humble and contrite spirit. That is a person understanding and believing that they are a wretched sinner and have no hope apart from the work of the Son of God. And they turn from their sin and trust in Him alone and His work and the work of, uh, His work on the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit and each person who comes to saving faith. It's the one who cries out, like the example we have in the Scripture of the man who cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he went away justified. It's not the proud man. Lord, thank you that I'm not like that guy. Right? This is, this is the example of a humble and contrite spirit. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what John's talking about when he's talking about this confession of Jesus Christ. Then John sums it all up by repeating what he's been saying for the last several verses. This is John telling you what his conclusion is based on all that God has done through his spirit. Based on all that he has seen personally and been taught personally by the Lord himself. John is the apostle of Christ. He's writing these things. He has the credentials to do so, the commission to do so. He says in verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay, we have more proof here. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's sort of the if-then thing again. Whoever abides, remains, lives in Christ, is pr- it's proof, okay? And John is, again, offering assurance for the troubled Christian. Remember, there's a lot of false teaching that's coming into the church it's that he, uh, the people that John is writing to, the Gnostics and all the, the others that are bringing false teaching in. Uh, it's troubling people. It's causing people to second guess, perhaps, to doubt. And so here, John is offering assurance for the Christian who may be troubled by these false teachings, may be troubled by their own uh, doubts because of some sin that's present in their life. And he's offering them assurance. And it's also, again, an invitation for the one with a humble and contrite spirit. He says, he says there, come to know and believe the love that God has for us. What, last question here, what was the love God has for us? 
that John talked about. Okay, yes, that is the type of love. It's a love of the will, agape. What was the example that we saw last week? How did God show that love? Absolutely. Sent his son to die. Well, let's look back at verses 9 and 10 again to see this. Because as, as John wraps this up, remember, he's summing it up here. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So, so that's where we go back and look at. The love that God has for us. Verses 9 and 10 of our passage here. Okay, no one born of God make. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry. That wouldn't have made sense. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what John is he's telling the people here. That, that he has come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And he's already explained to them what that is. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation. Remember, to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. He took it all on himself so that we wouldn't have to. And so John is expressing that here. That he has come to know and to believe this. And he is encouraging the people. Come to know and believe this with me. Stay grounded in this truth. Don't go off and believe all the false teachers and the Gnostics and all the, the junk that they're trying to bring in. Okay. He says, you can know. That's his encouragement to the people. So we'll stop there for tonight and continue on uh, next week. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for um, these words that John has written down. We thank you for these reminders. Lord, there are so many different places in the scripture that express this wonderful truth about your love for us. But these words that we hear in this passage, Lord, are so powerful and so meaningful, express it so well, the love that you had for us by sending your son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're so grateful, Father. Help us to, to meditate on that every day, to remember the truth of your love for us that brought us to, uh, to a place of being uh, co-heirs with Christ, Lord, to being your adopted sons and daughters, to awaiting our inheritance that's being kept for us in heaven as we wait the return of our Savior to come and take us home to be with him. None of this from our own doing, but totally and completely your work. We thank you, Father, and we praise you for the sacrifice that Christ made for us. We thank you for uh, the helper that you have sent, Holy Spirit, as he continues to work in our lives and in sanctification and in teaching us Help us, Father, to trust you and to trust your word alone. We praise you and thank you and want to glorify you in everything. You are beyond worthy, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.